Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1975 film One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's video store. Barrett, how you doing? I'm great, Sam. Thanks. Barrett, um, this was a really fun film to watch. Um, I, As I said last week, I was going to take a shot at, at rereading this book, and I had a chance to do it. And I ended up reading it before I watched the movie, which I... Um, which I kind of liked because I, I, um, it was fun to to think about the the differences, and we might get into that a little bit here. But to start with, what is your history with this film? Oh, that's a good question. I definitely would have seen it when it came out. Um, so I'm I'm dating myself again, and uh, I remember I would have been in high school. So uh, yeah, I saw it, I saw it in the theater uh, when it first came out. I I thought it was fantastic from the from the get go. Um, I knew who Jack Nicholson was, um, and so that was I was sort of expecting a, a Nicholson performance. Uh, so, yeah, I um, I was. I, I, it's interesting because this is a this was based on a a really really popular book. So w- I, I imagine it was sort of a big deal. This movie coming out, mm-hmm. I would imagine. Um, and I'm curious about Nicholson because I I need to say as a child of the '80s, I'm a little bit younger than you. As a child of the '80s, I only I grew up knowing like late career Jack Nicholson. So like, I think honestly, I think the first time I saw the Jack Nicholson movie was probably Tim Burton's Batman when he mm-hmm. plays the Joker. And then mm-hmm. when he plays Colonel Jessup and a few good men. So like, that's who Jack Nicholson is to me. So it is amazing to watch, uh, you know, young Jack 1975, Jack Nicholson um, in, in this performance. So I'm sort of curious, I've done a little bit of looking at this, but who was Jack Nicholson in 1975? He was definitely a rising star. Um, this was actually his fourth Oscar nomination, uh, in his first win. So, um, he had started kind of, well, he started in the early sixties, actually in a Roger, Roger Corman's, uh, B movies, but, uh, his first kind of big breakthrough role was, uh, Easy Rider. Uh, with uh, with Peter Fonda, which I actually finally saw for the first time a few months ago. Uh, and then he was in Five Easy Pieces and The Last Detail. But probably the biggest splash he made right before this film was, was Chinatown, um, which was also uh, a film for which he was nominated for an Oscar. So I think he was on the cusp of being a really big thing. And this was sort of what, you know, what pushed him over the edge, even though he was not the first choice for the role. Um, yeah. yeah, he was third choice. Uh, and I can't imagine either of the other two actors. Well, I mean, they would have been a very different McMurphy. So Gene Hackman, who was very hot at the time because of the French Connection films. So Gene Hackman was first choice, and then Marlon Brando. Um, and I think about Brando right about this right about the time they would have been filming Apocalypse Now, a couple about a year later. Can't imagine Brando doing this part. But anyway, those are the first two choices. And of course, if you want to back up even further, uh, the 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 rights to the there was a, play, a Broadway play uh, based on the film, and that those rights were owned by Kirk Douglas. Uh, and of course, Michael Douglas, his son, was the producer. So Kirk wanted to play McMurphy. Uh, and at the time, he would have been in his 60s, which seems kind of absurd to me. So anyway, so Nicholson was number choice number three, but he was a rising star. Yeah, I have to say, I mean, my, my takeaway from this is, and I'm not breaking news to anyone, but I watched this movie and I thought, wow, Jack Nicholson is great. Great. Now I get I get why people like fawn over him. Like this this performance, it, he he embodies that character so well. And again, having read the book right before watching it, like I mean, there are certain things where he actually doesn't fit the description of McMurphy very well in the book. 
but at the same time he is it's such a like a uh energetic um charismatic performance um and especially i think in uh <laughs> putting that character with that energy into this situation uh into the this this mental hospital you know where you have people who are uh you know snowed over either with 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 drugs or snowed over through surgeries or other things. And then you put him into this and it's, it is, it's magical. I just, I was blown away. And again, I'm not breaking any news. This guy has, uh, has three Oscars. He's been nominated 12 times. So, you know, I'm, I'm late to the party on this, but I, this, this made me realize this is why it was a big deal in the late eighties, nineties when he was in movies, I remember it being a big deal. And I was like, I don't, I don't quite understand. I, I, I liked him in the movies that I saw, but they were always these supporting roles. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Another question that I have for you, it, this is kind of to set up talking about this film in light of some other things, but um, people often talk about 1970s American cinema as like a particular, a particular era, a particular time. Um, what does that mean? When you think about you know American American films in the 1970s, what uh, what comes to mind? Yeah, so I think a couple thing uh, a couple things come to mind. One would be um, Coppola and the Godfather films. So I think that one of the things the 70s means is kind of the the rise of um, of, of Francis Ford Coppola as a great director. It also means to be uh, to me Martin Scorsese. Uh, and uh, Scorsese's films, uh, the, you know, we've watched Raging Bull, which is 1980, right towards the end of the decade, but probably a film like um, Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, a really significant domestic drama, and then Mean Streets, which is kind of where he first puts his his, uh, his hand into the mob pictures. So I think Scorsese is part of it. Um, there's even a little bit of, uh, of uh, the George Lucas phenomenon, right? You have American Graffiti in 73, and then you get the Star Wars films. But I think that what it, I think so I think part of what it means for the, for the 70s is there's a kind of the rise of the American auteur, you know, the director as author. But there's also kind of um, a sense of there's a little bit more grittiness and realism to American films. John Huston shoots a film called Fat City, uh, which is kind of a real realistic. Uh, you get realistic crime dramas. You get the um, you know, you get the mob dramas. Uh, you get uh, neo noirs like Chinatown. So I think it's uh, and again another John Hughes uh, or Roman Polanski film. So again, I think there's this sense of um, a, a deeper, broader, more varied subject matter. In a sense, the film's moving towards a more serious reflection on significant issues. Um, oh, I should have mentioned. You know, the other couple of film with with Gene Hackman is. Um, and the title of it is going the to the conversation. Out. Yeah, the conversation. Um, and you know, that's you could say that's a Nixon-inspired film, right? In 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 some ways, this going flew of his cookies. That's kind of a response to government over overreach. So I think it's American film in the seventies is uh, there's a lot of variety. There's a lot of depth. Uh, there's a lot of creativity. Yeah, I, I think um, the looking at the the nineteen. 19- well, 1976 Oscars for the 1977 um, year, or excuse me, 1975 year, where um, this this film has the distinction of being one of three films to basically sweep the major category. So it won Best Picture, Best Screenplay, Best Director, Best Actor, and Best Actress. Um, I don't know if you looked at the 1975 Oscars, but can I just read you the murderer's row of, for example, Best Director from 1975? So Milos Forman wins for this film, but he's up against uh, uh, Fellini, Kubrick, 
Sidney Lumet and Robert Altman. <laughs> I mean, it it is it is such a good that there's a name that doesn't show up there who makes, to my mind, one of the like great American. Well, not great American. Okay, that that make, makes it a really great film and and sort of presages things to come. This is the same year that one of my favorite movies, Jaws, comes out, and and Spielberg can't even get a nomination because of that. <laughs> So yeah, so your best picture nominees are One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Barry Lyndon, Dog Day Afternoon, Jaws, and uh, Altman's Nashville. So like again, just a amazing year in movies. I'm, gl- I'm glad you brought those up, Sam, because Altman w- w- actually should have been on my list as I was thinking about our tours of the seventies. In fact, I wanted to I wanted to do Nashville for our podcast, but it's not available cheap. Um, of course, the Pacino film, Dog Day Afternoon, I mean, this is 1975, and they're talking about a sex change operation. That's the, that's the whole basis of, of that film. The other phenomenon of the 70s, which I also forgot, is um, is Rocky uh, and Mr. Stallone, and the idea that this, this kind of little independent film made by this kind of palooka uh, turns into this huge popular, popular success. Yeah, I think that's that's a, another piece that I, so I was looking at um the other thing you get in the 70s is you get this the kind of the auteur and 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 kind of the um the, some people the kind of the, the, this peak of American cinema in some ways but at the same time you're getting the beginnings of what you're going to see in the 80s with this pivot towards blockbusters because in 75 you have jaws which makes an astounding 260 million dollars um one Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest was second and made $109 million on a $4 million budget. But, I mean, that just shows the disparity between that, that Jaws makes more than twice what the second <laughs> film makes. 76, you have Rocky as the top-grossing film. And then 77, you have Star Wars, mm-hmm. another $200 million film. So you're getting both this, you know, um, kind of some of the stuff you're talking about, but then you're also starting to see these, what's going to become these, the the kind of blockbusters of the 80s because all of the all of three of those films are films that um, spawn franchises and sequels and all these things, which is mm-hmm. what my childhood was. So I'm seeing the roots of that and this other this sort of this other thing uh, going on here. Um, so let's let's jump into talking about One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest itself. So one one question I have, and I don't I don't know that this this matters because categorizations don't necessarily matter. Um, it's interesting in Ebert's review, he talked about this like this movie is. Uh, is very funny at times. Mm-hmm. Um, but is it a comedy or is it, I mean, because obviously like the themes of the movie are very dark and the ending has multiple, very dark moments to it. So how do you, how do you categorize a movie like this? That's a good question, Sam. I, and I, 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 I don't think it has a genre that it fits easily into. I don't consider it a comedy and that may in part be, I mean, not that I didn't laugh at times, um, so maybe it, it's a, it's a comedy of the black variety, uh, the dark comedy, but, um, it's, it was hard, especially having seen the film before, it was hard for me to embrace it as a comedy because I knew where we were going. Um, and I even think if you were watching it the first time and you had no suspicion of where it was going, um, it's, I don't think it's a true comedy because there's kind of, in a sense, there's, well, I shouldn't say there's too much at stake because I think comedy should have something at stake. But there's always, in my mind, there's always a, a hesitation about laughter in a situation where you're dealing with people that have a certain kind of uh, disability. Uh, and I think the film is tries pretty hard and pretty successfully not to caricature the patients. So in terms of comic laughter, you're kind of stopped short, right, by the notion that I don't want to laugh at these people because of their condition. 
And the situation isn't exactly humorous because it's a power of will between Nurse Ratchet and McMurphy. So in that sense, it has comic elements, but I wouldn't consider it a comedy. And then, of course, structurally, it's not a comedy because a comedy has to have a happy ending by definition if you want to talk about the genre. Right, right. Uh, yeah, I mean, one of the the I mean the things that as I was reading contemporary reviews and and more reviews sort of written much later is, uh, you know, talking about the uh, sort of the way the the movie humanizes so many of the characters in the um, in the institution. Now, I will say I grew up with parents who worked at in Minnesota, the Minnesota State Hospital system, so this is this is something that is uh, very important to me. Um, mm -hmm. And and you know it's it's one of those things that the first time you scan around that hospital and you're you know you're watching McMurphy kind of encounter people in that hospital like you know he's kind of trying to figure out who they are and they and everybody definitely has these quirks that you kind of discover but um but it does it i mean it does it does work to to humanize the people in here but now one of the things that i saw in the um in the reviews was there was often people writing about attention be attention in the movie in terms of um the movie's attempt to humanize the 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 patients in this facility and then at the same time it's also trying to make this bigger argument about um kind of conformity and these types of things and that for a lot of reviewers they saw this as as attention like the movie trying to do two things and what's interesting is how many of the reviews were not they were positive but they weren't like a hundred percent positive because this is a movie that is you know looked at as you know one of the great one of the great american films it's on it's pretty high on the afi list um did you sense that tension in this or, or do you see that not as a tension yeah that's a good question sam and i um i it's almost as though the critics didn't think that the film could individualize characters and at the same time have a kind of um symbolic or allegorical weight um and i i didn't I didn't see that as a tension, I, and partly because, partly because I'm not sure. Some of the critics, like Vincent Camby in the Times, kind of took it as a as a vast critique of American society, and I, I don't think that's what the film is doing. I, I do think the film has um, there are senses in which Nurse Ratchet and Nicholson are archetypes, um, and there is a, a fundamental battle between them that you can kind of allegorize in terms of a lot, number of different categories. Um, but I, but the way to me, I mean, maybe it's just because of my liter literary background, but I have no trouble seeing characters as both allegorical and realistic at the same time, uh, or symbolic and, 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 uh, realistic at the same time. So I, I didn't, I didn't feel that as a, as a tension. Um, so it wasn't, it wasn't an issue for me, but you're, you're, there are a number of critics kind of feel that, that either it doesn't work or the film is trying to, to hold to uphold a weight that it actually can't bear. One of the things that I, that I found interesting um, is thinking about the director of this film, uh, Milos Forman. Um, and if, if I hadn't known who directed this, I would not have been su surprised to learn that this was directed by a Czech director uh, in the 1970s. And it's because um, when I was a senior at Bethel, my senior research uh, was on the, uh, the plays of Vaclav Havel, Mm. Um, who also, you know, was in in yeah. Prague during Prague Spring '68 and sort of the Soviet crackdown um, coming out of that. And it, there's a way in which this reminds me of um, 
of Havel plays a little bit where you have these characters who are running up against these structures and these systems and these rules. Now Havel writes a lot more like Samuel Beckett and this, <laughs> this, this story is far more realistic in terms of how the story is told. But I definitely, I wasn't thinking about who Foreman was when I started watching this and it was, it sort of reminded me of like, Oh, this, this is the kind of thing I feel like Havel would have written about or would have, I mean, he would have set something in an institution like this. He might've even used, some characters like this i mean like i said the the play would work a little differently but it's very interesting to realize oh foreman is also in prague in 68 and it's like yeah that totally makes sense to me that this this feels like a uh, of a piece with some of the things that havel was writing i'm glad you brought that up because my you know you your your preparation was to reread the novel my preparation was to uh, finally watch um, foreman's last czech film the fireman's ball um, and, and so I think the, the connection you're making between his, uh, his role in, you know, there was what was called the Czech New Wave in the 60s, and he was kind of the, the leading filmmaker of that, one of his other films called Loves of a Blonde. But The Fireman's Ball um, uh, was a film that was seen as actually being one of these allegorical criticisms of the state, um, and so he had a little bit of a hard time getting it made. But... It certainly is of a piece with one flew of the cuckoo's nest in that he is interested in um, thinking about the structure of society, political, sociological, and thinking about what it means to conform, what it means to non-conform. So that's that, that I think is kind of a, a through line in his career. If I if I think about um, you know his next film after this is Hair, which is a which is a, a really interesting adaptation of, of another, again of another Broadway play, also about non-conformity. And then he makes what I think is another truly great film, Amadeus. Uh, and I've seen that film three or four times. I just love it every time. And one of the things going on in Amadeus, of course, is, is Mozart is, you know, we think of him as this great classical figure, but he was quite the nonconformist, both in terms of his personal behavior and his art. And so I think Foreman just keeps, and, and, and one of his later films is on uh, Larry Flint, the publisher, the publisher of Hustler, uh, The People versus Larry Flint. So he's continually drawn to these themes of, of nonconformity. So as you think about this, uh, this film, uh, as we sort of talk about it, I'm trying to I'm, I'm pick a direction you want to go here. Do you want to talk about characters or do you want to talk about moments in the film that stand out to you? Because I want to do both, but but where do you want to go first? Yeah, let's just start with characters. Okay. Uh, so so I mean we have the we have the the two main characters we talked about Nicholson a little bit as, as McMurphy and uh, Louise Fletcher as Nurse Nurse Ratched. So those are our, sort of our two main characters, and then we have a huge um, a huge cast of other uh, of other characters who who again we get we get insights into even though we don't. We actually do spend a lot of time with them as I think about it. And what I like about this screenplay and this film is you get to see the characters interacting with each other in this kind of uh, controlled setting. Do you have characters that that stand out to you? That, um, yeah. I mean, I, 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 well, first of all, let's let me say something about Nurse Ratchet and, and McMurphy. Obvious though it may be, I think it's important to kind of touch on, and that is. Um, thinking about the various ways in which they are at odds with each other. And I think the the director of the hospital's observation is really interesting that he he observes that um, even though she is the one with whom, he is the one with whom she has the most difficult relationship, he, he's also the one who in some senses is closest to her. So to me, that's one of the interesting things about the film is suggesting this kind of inevitable 
binary opposition uh, along a number of different kind of uh, uh, axes. So if you think about this politically, right, she's the autocrat uh, and he's the anarchist. Uh, if you think about it psychologically, she's the superego and he's the id. Or if you think about it sociologically, she's the system and he's the individual. Or if you think about it religiously, she's orthodoxy. He's like he's 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 iconoclasm. Or if you think about it, think about it in terms of gender. Obviously, female, male. But we have this woman who's in charge of these men, almost like a a queen bee in charge of a hive. So I I just find the endless ways in which their relationship kind of figures those. Um, those basic conflicts really, really interesting. Beyond that, though, I, Mr. Harding is really interesting to me because he he's one with whom McMurphy is obviously um, most often in conflict, aside from Nurse Ratchet. And it's partly because he himself is, he's got this kind of straight lacedness about him. So he's, he's, he's part of this spectrum of, of crazy, which is, well, you can be crazy, but that doesn't mean you can be like McMurphy, or you can be mentally ill, and you can be like like Harding. And of course, you know McMurphy's nickname for him, Hard On, you know, suggests that he sees him as almost just as rigid, rigid as, as Nurse Ratchet. So I love their interplay, and then I love the way that he kind of takes Mancini under his under his wing, um, and he and Mancini becomes you know kind of a catalyst for one of the big one of the big blowups. So I just like the way that McMurphy is kind of at the center. And the different relationships he has with each of those characters kind of catalyzes different moments in the film. Yeah, and I, and I love. I mean, I'm so happy that uh, that Louise Fletcher was nominated and won for for this um, because I mean, another even in their performances, we talked about how Nicholson gets to be this like live wire energy in this, and she is so controlled, and she's so controlled in the things she says. And in the nonverbal things she does, and I just and there's there's just there's so many shots where it will just cut back and forth between their two faces, you know, when they're doing kind of the the group stuff, and uh, I feel like like you almost never see her break at any moment, and it's it's such a good performance, you know, to to really play that uh, to really play that that kind of tension. Um, another another character that that jumps out to me i mean he obviously plays a big role uh in the end of the film but even just from the very beginning is uh is the billy bibbit character it's such a good it's such a good performance it's such a um he's just he's somebody who who jumps out at me as as another character that um mcmurphy becomes a you know an older brother or father figure to him And, and you know we and we have this um this sense that he also has this other woman in his life where his, and this is uh, definitely, there's even more of this in the book that his mother works at the hospital as well. And that, that is, that is part of the power that ratchet has over him is, you know, at the end, like, you know, her talking about how, you know, he's, she needs to talk to his mother about this. And, uh, but I, but I just thought that performance is really, uh, is really, really great. So I was, I was curious, like, what else did this guy go on to do? Because this is uh, uh, Brad Dorff. This is his first, uh, well, first or second. He had two movies come out that year, um, and uh, and I just he was he was one of those people. And actually, I would say for a lot of the folks in this movie, I'm just 
there's something magnetic about their, and maybe it's the way that they're shot or something about the faces too. I mean, some, some of these are just really great faces. And this is a movie where you spend, a, because you're in a small room, you spend a lot of time, um, spend a lot of time with those, uh, with those faces. So I really thought that was, that was a great performance. And I think it's a really, it's a really central, uh, central character in that way. Yeah, Brad Badger Reef's next great performance, by the way. And I think he's an actor who never really uh, got as many good roles as he should have. He shows up, of course, in Lord of the Rings. Um, but I think his next great performance is really in uh, another adaptation, John Huston's film of Wise Blood. Uh, I love the book and I, lo and I love the film. They're both great. And of course, the other folks that make their debut in this film, Christopher Lloyd uh, and um, uh, Danny DeVito. I think it's probably DeVito's first film. DeVito was in the Broadway production. Uh, as as well, yeah. And what what I what I loved about seeing both of them is that those are two other people who I view through the lens of being mm -hmm. a child of the '80s. And by the time I encountered both of them, they were kind of caricatures of themselves. So I don't mm -hmm. think of Danny DeVito as an actor. I don't even think of Christopher Lloyd exactly as an actor. I think of him as he's Doc Brown. He's these other things. But to see him in this, and it's like, oh, he's actually really good. He's like like he and 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 he again conveys something just through the looks that he's giving you know I, I feel like this in in lots of ways i assume is just a great actor's movie like you just get the opportunity to to have a character and kind of you're given some things but also kind of create the character because a lot of it is characters responding to things that are happening around them responding to this central tension that you talk about you get to look at all of the other patients responding to this you know, war between these two gods in the room, right? You have control and chaos and, and everybody else is, is uh, responding and often non-verbally responding, but, but reacting to that. And I, so I, I imagine as an actor, this is a, a pretty, uh, a pretty interesting type of film to make. Yeah. Yeah. It's the only Christopher Lloyd performance I can stand to watch. It just ir irritates me to death, but he's great in this film. <laughs> Um, and uh, some interesting things with that I found with the casting, the guy who plays the doctor, like the, mm -hmm. the main doctor in the, he's actually the head of the hospital that they, um, that they filmed this in. And he, he connected each of the actors with, uh, a, a patient in the, in the mental hospital. And some of them even like stayed in the hospital for a few days. And apparently there were some of the patients in the hospital were given jobs on the crew <laughs> and they only found out later on that some of these folks were actually pretty dangerous people. <laughs> they're just like, you know, it's like, yeah, they're, you know, they're holding lights or doing things like this. And it's like, oh, well, we maybe should have learned a little bit more, uh, a little bit more about that. Yeah, um, I should note that I should note this is our return to Oregon where we were with First Cow. So, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the movies that I thought about, um, and it's probably no mistake that you put these next to each other, was I thought about the exterminating angel in connection to this film, you know, in part because there is this moment of reveal where you you learn that uh, Chief Bromden, McMurphy, and uh, Tabor, the Christopher Lloyd character, are the only people on the ward who are committed. Mm -hmm. And that everybody else is there by choice, mm -hmm. um, which made me think of the exterminating angel in this sort of sense of like, what are the things that are holding them in here, you know? And, um, and so it's one of those things where it's like, wow, what if you threw McMurphy into that room and the exterminating angel? Like, what if you had, what if you had that? Cause, cause that's almost yeah. what this is like there, there, there is this kind of paralysis of the people there. And there's also the sense that, 
Um, and you know, I think is is if we think about this, is like some of these folks aren't equipped to be out of this hospital, and they're they're there by choice. They're not required to be there, but there is this kind of safety and security they they feel here. To that extent, it made me feel a little bit like. Um, like a utopia dystopia kind of movie where it's like, there is this people have now uh, there is this system, there are these structures and you can find a kind of comfort in it. But then there's also somebody there who's pointing out all the other stuff that comes with the degree of, I don't know if comfort comforts the word or just you become acclimated to a particular, I mean, it makes me think of even like, you know, uh, prison movies like, like Shawshank where they talk, you know, where, where Brooks gets out of, gets out of prison and he's free and the basically what he ends up doing is killing himself and red has to struggle with that same thing you know there is that sort of you just become institutionalized you know in a in it not in a committed way but in a this is just who you are kind of way yeah. that's interesting you say you you point that out because there were some great prison movies in the 60s like the great escape and cool hand luke uh but this is very different from that um, the thought experiment about the exterminating angel and McMurphy is a great one, Sam, because that's one of the points of, of, of that film, and that there, there is no McMurphy in the upper, in the upper classes, because they're, they're the ones that need to hold on to power. That's a room full of nurse ratchets, uh, is, is one of the problems. Or a room full of inmates, one of the two. One of the two, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's talk about the ending, uh, the ending of this movie. I mean, you, you, you pointed to this as like, this is, this is one of the reasons why it is clearly not a comedy. This is a, there is a sort of a, a series of, of, of things that kind of culminate, uh, in this. Um, so we have, uh, chief and McMurphy. Well, well, I, even before, actually, before we get to the ending, there's that, that sort of powerful moment, um, when McMurphy realizes that he had been sort of playing one game in terms of he thought he was just running out his sentence here. And then he realizes that because he moved from the, the labor camp to the, uh, to the mental asylum that he now it's like the, his clock is different in terms of when he can, when he can be released. And he's actually at the, um, he's under the control of people like nurse ratchet when they're, when they allow him to leave. And that becomes this, this sort of, pivot moment in the movie where which explains why he doesn't think about escape earlier because there is that moment where he climbs over the fence yeah, with yeah. the chief's help and you're like you could just run but then you realize oh he doesn't he thinks this is just a matter it's just a matter of time um because it, it is, isn't even that long that he has on in the labor camp i feel right. like right um and then we get to the the end of the movie and we see mcmurphy basically with the open door, like with the open window there. And he decides to stay um, for, uh, you know, in some ways to kind of throw this party and keep this party going. And, but also to kind of try to um, give something to Billy. So we see this, this tension that even he has of like, he has the opportunity for freedom and escape and all those things. But at the same time, he has fostered, a relationship and with that relationship he feels some degree of responsibility to the people on the ward you know where he wants to at least give them something before he goes uh, and this is true in the book too where there's just this moment of like okay but why are you like why the fact that he falls asleep there mm -hmm. is uh is a really interesting 
kind of narrative choice because imagine being in that situation even if you were drunk wouldn't your whole sense be like all right the clock my sense would be the clock is ticking the clock is ticking we only have so much time so like we can do what we're doing here but we have to go but mcmurphy doesn't and he falls asleep there um and then we have the sort of series of events that comes from there well this this is where i think the film avoids or breaks free of easy allegorizing uh and, and maybe that's one of the tensions that some of the critics see because i think McMurphy doesn't escape for a couple of reasons. I think one is you've already indicated that he actually has a kind of um, uh, he, he has a, he has a generosity towards people. I mean, he really he really thinks he can make their lives better. He really thinks it's important for Billy to have this experience. So I think there's a sense in which um, he really is motivated, as is Nurse Ratched in her own way. He is motivated to try to do something to improve their lives or make their lives better. So I think it's coming from a, a place of genuine caring um, to the degree that he can feel that. But there's also it's also coming from a psychological place of simply um, he his character is the kind that is ultimately self defeating. Um, he's he's already defeated himself and he doesn't yet know it by moving from the prison farm labor labor camp to to the hospital because what he's traded is he's traded one kind of captivity for another. Um, he's traded physical captivity for a kind of mental, emotional, psychological captivity. And rebelling against the latter is very different from rebelling against the former. He's constitutionally incapable of accepting the um, authority of Nurse Ratched, even if it's at the expense of his own freedom. So I think there's a way in which he can't escape because, um, you know, realistically, he's drunk. Uh, emotionally, he's trying to reach out to, to Billy, Bill, Billy Bibbitt. But also psychologically, he's just one of those characters who defeats their own intentions. And that defeat is part of, and I'm not sure he has the stature to call it a tragic flaw, but it's a kind of inherent self-defeat uh, about his own psychological makeup. Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting. Um, I was thinking about some of the things that he does for the other um, the other patients on the ward. Uh, something like like when he's trying to get them to to vote on watching the World Series. Like there's a part of it where it's like, well, he wants to watch the World Series, but there's a part of it where he's if you listen to what he's saying, he's like, don't you want to be don't you want to be a human? Don't you want to be a man? And like we should like sit here and and even when they're sitting and he's sort of acting out the World Series for them, he's like, all I need is a is a dog and a beer at this point. And like and and we've made it. And it reminds me of um, this is a movie I've already brought up. It reminds me of Andy Dufresne in Shawshank when they're um, mm -hmm. tarring the prison roof, right? And he and he he manages to get them the get them like a, they each get a, a few beers and they, they sit there for a while and he talks about like and for that moment like this wasn't guards and inmates, but the, like we could have been we could have been working on any on any any of our own roofs and like we're just taking this moment and we felt like people again and they sort of I mean they're now very different characters very different mm -hmm. stories but but there is something about uh about kind of a a, a mirror there um a mirror there a little bit uh, a character we haven't talked about really much yet who is a very important character in this in this story is chief mm -hmm. uh, chief brown but now in the ken kesey book Chief is the narrator of the book. So everything is seen through his lens. Um, and even McMurphy is, is, is seen. We're seeing sort of chief's view of McMurphy. So McMurphy 
can almost have like superhero like qualities to chief because it's not it's not an ob- more it's not an objective lens. Uh, there's a really there was a really good article on the AV Club where they broke down kind of the the way the story changes when you take it out of chief's perspective and how it really makes McMurphy even though he's central to the novel as well, like you're still seeing him through chief's eyes. And in the film, McMurphy is McMurphy. Like you, you don't get this sense of, um, you, you, he, he seems more real in that, um, in that kind of way. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your thoughts on the character of chief? And I mean, that is the, the ultimate end end of the movie is sort of chief becomes the one who takes up a kind of agency. Yeah. Well, I mean, chief, uh, chief, chief is, I mean, he, he, he obviously he's one more, Kind of, you could add him as an, another allegorical element to the film, right? Because Chief is the kind of the ultimate inmate in terms of what's happened historically in uh, in, in the in the United States. Um, yeah, he represents that. Um, that's why, in a sense, you could say the film kind of has two endings, right? Because you have you know the death and the defeat of McMurphy, but then you have the ultimate triumph of of chief in and of course he he triumphs by performing exactly the act that mcmurphy is not able to to perform you know throwing that countertop uh through through the window so it's kind of it, it kind of the film sort of has it has its cake and eat it can eat it too at the same time and it's interesting that the scene with chief escaping kind of um reprises the scene of mcmurphy arriving uh and they're both their visions of moving from the green world into the gray world of the uh, of the asylum and then moving from that gray world back out into the into into the green world and it's so the chief becomes kind of one again with his with his natural environment uh are there other things you want to talk about with this film yeah i want to be negative for just a minute uh sam and that is that one of the scenes in the film that has never has always kind of felt false to me was the scene that Foreman actually didn't even want to include, which is the fishing boat expedition. Um, it just it's uh, it just seems like I mean it's not even the implausibility of it, which is pretty pretty high, um, but it 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 doesn't seem as though it's it, it doesn't to me it doesn't strike the right the right note. Um, there's just something about it. It seems kind of over the top. Uh, it turns. It kind of turns the characters really into caricatures for a while, um, and it just it just it just doesn't work for me. And then it doesn't seem as though there's a huge enough uh, lockdown after they come back. It just it just seems like it's this lark that happens. And it, and Foreman didn't want to shoot it. The producers in, encouraged him or really made him do it. And I just feel like you know that was that that's kind of a false moment in the film. Although a lot of people think of it as their favorite moment. Um, yeah. And what's interesting about that is in the book that plays a little bit differently because they don't steal a bus and go, but it's, it's actually like the, the head doctor goes with them and it's an arranged right. trip and they end up kind of hijacking the boat. <laughs> but, but the, the actually them going on this fishing trip is one of Max. Um, this is, this is where he first connects with uh, kind of where he first connects with chief. Cause he convinces chief to go, um, on the fishing trip, which I don't think he goes on in the movie. I don't think he's no, because no, he would be one of the he'd be one not. of the chronics. Yeah, so so it changes a little bit uh, a little bit that way uh, because it is more in the in the book. It's more about Mac working the system. He manages to get enough people on board, and so it's it's part. It, so it plays differently that way because you're right. It does seem like they stole a bus, they stole a boat, they did all this, and it seems like there's no 
big ramifications when we see other things have major ramifications uh, that happen in the in the movie. So it was that was one of the things that surprised me, and I wonder if it was. I mean, one of the things you get with the way it appears in the film is you see that Mac has the ability to run away at that moment and doesn't. Um, where in the book that that's not there isn't a moment like that. I mean, there there isn't a, another moment where he's outside of the fence. You know, because he also could just take that bus and run. He gets everybody on it and takes them out fishing. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I, my feelings were similar, but it had more to do with, I feel like the book handled the setup for that a little bit more plausibly. Mm-hmm. Um, and you get some of the same payoffs without, um, without it feeling like something more should happen because of this. Yeah. I guess, you know, the other thing I just want to comment on is, you know, people raise the question of how well the film, how well the film ages, you know, that what, what issues in this film kind of date it, what issues kind of, uh, or aspects of the film keep it kind of fresh. And, you know, you could argue that in a way it's a, it's a little bit dated because this is not the way that we treat mentally ill people anymore, by and large. We don't do frontal lobotomies. Uh, Electroshock therapy is still used, uh, but not nearly to the extent that that it was. So in some respects, as a, as, a, as a critique of a particular um, system, it seems a bit dated. But on the other hand, in terms of some of the dynamics going on, we haven't talked at all about, I touched on this very briefly, we haven't really talked at all about the notion in which this is a drama because it's a female, it's a woman controlling a bunch of men. Uh, and that's obviously a really interesting, that's a really significant issue for McMurphy. And I think the book is a lot more, in some respects, sexist than the novel is, um, you know, nurse. I, I think that that's one of the you you mentioned this earlier. It's one of the great things about Louise Fletcher's performance as Nurse Ratched is that she's not she's not turned into a caricature. Yet at the same time, there is clearly a kind of uh, gender uh, war going on or a gen- gender tension in, in, in the film. And I think that's something that still is still relevant to think about. And I think the whole issue of I mean, conformity, non-conformity, uh, who's really crazy after all? I mean, I think those are still kind of, you know, live issues. Yeah. And, and like you said, the, the book, there's a, it, it's more explicit about, I mean, the sort of the language of ratchet as like a castrator of men, you know, that, 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 that's, there's a, that, that's a reoccurring theme. Um, so there is this sort of talking about it like this, kind of uh failed american masculinity or something mm-hmm. and there 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 there's there's more of that there i mean it's you can read that into the film but it's they're 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 less expli- explicit in the language about it um one thing i didn't read anything anybody talking about is um is race in the movie and i don't really know how to how to talk about that but it is interesting that um you have with the exception of chief every inmate is a white male and yep. and almost everybody working in the institution are either women there are the doctors but they make it a point to say that ratchet basically controls the doctors there are the doctors and then there are uh women who are nurses and then there are black men who who work on the ward as well um so i didn't i mean i don't know if you have thoughts on that but that that seemed to stand out to me as a definitely the way that I mean, it becomes almost a visual organization too. Yeah, right. There's a couple of black orderlies, but actually, this meant this this brings up one other really important character we haven't talked about, and that is the Scatman Crothers uh, as the uh, as the night watchman. And of course, he and Nicholson pair up five years later in The Shining uh, when Nicholson gets to kill him with an axe. Um, so, I, to me, what's interesting about that is that I mean, obviously, you have the racial element of, of Chief. 
Um, but it's interesting to me that even with the black orderlies and Scatman Crothers, I don't, there isn't a sense there, I don't think, of, of racial tension. It seems more to be kind of a simple uh, sociological depiction that those are jobs that folks, mm -hmm. those folks often inhabit. Um, yeah. So I don't think, you know, I, I don't see a, a, a kind of a racial tension in, say, the scene at the pool when they're trying to, you know, force McMurphy back into the, into the water. That doesn't have the same kind of tension that his relationship with Nurse Ratchet has. Mm -hmm. I think there's maybe a little bit more in the book just because of the language of the book to describe things that they're con he's constantly bringing it up. Um, but I don't. I think you're right. I don't think that that's that that's a uh, a, a tension in that way. Anything else with this film? Yeah, I just want to give a shout out to the cinematographer. Uh, the cinematographer was uh, one of the great cinematographers uh, in the 20th century, Haskell Wexler. Uh, he was a self-taught cinematographer, actually, um, made a lot of documentaries, um, shot four films with John Sayles, uh, did not shoot Lone Star with John Sayles, but he shot four films with John Sayles. And he was the last cinematographer to receive a, an Oscar uh, for black and white cinematography. Uh, the last year that was given was 66, and he got it for Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. So I always like to give a shout out to to the cinematographers when I'm aware of who they are. He got fired from the film because he and Foreman had artistic differences. Um, so he, it was sort of a, a shared uh, credit. But he says, I think he's probably right, he said he shot all but one or two minutes of the film. So essentially he was the cinematographer. Great. So what do you have for us for next week? Well, I'm thinking of making an obvious move, uh, Sam, I think. Well, actually, there's two directions I could go in. I'm going to go in one direction this week and a different direction next week. So this week, I want to go to the previous film that swept the big five categories at the Oscars, which was Clark Gable and Claudette Colbert's It Happened One Night uh, from 1934. Uh, we have had um, our misadventures with screwball comedy in the past. So uh, let's see what happens with it happened one night, which uh, I have only seen once and it was many years ago. So it'll be an interesting revisit for me. Well, I'm in the same boat. I have seen this movie, but it was probably in the, it's probably in the late nineties. Like I said, when they did that AFI list came out in 97 or 98, I started to just try to work my way through a lot of the movies on there. And that was pretty high on that list. So I know I've seen it. Um, but other than a few sort of fleeting images, I don't have a lot of memory, uh, a lot of memory of it, but, uh, I'm, I'm very excited to, uh, very excited to watch this and I will, I will enter it with an open heart Barrett and <laughs> it's okay, Sam, if we, uh, if we have to trash it, we will do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, Barrett, thank you so much for, uh, for recommending this movie. This was, this was really great. And again, I have my big takeaway is. Jack Nicholson's a great actor and I don't know that, that I'm breaking news, but that like, I, I, it makes me want to go and look at some of those, uh, kind of early seventies, early Nicholson performances. And just to kind of see, to see versions of that. Cause even by the time you get to the shining Jack Nicholson, you know, that's, that's five years later than this. And so, you know, so, so there, there's a lot of his, uh, his career I haven't seen. So thank you for recommending this. Thank you for the conversation. And we will be back next week to talk about it happened one night in the video store.